Everywhere, people are talking negatively about the church. People switching churches, trying to find the right one. People pointing out problems with churches, highlighting hypocrites. People giving up on churches and quitting altogether. And others starting their own brand of church in their homes. And I've done my share of complaining, trust me. But the older I get, the more I travel and the more I learn, the more convinced I've become healthy, vibrant, local churches filled with people following Jesus are the hope of the world. And we had better get busy building those kind of churches, strengthening them and supporting them, because our world is a mess and no one else is coming to rescue us. It's up to us. So grab a Bible, a phone, a notepad, whatever you must, and let's jump into part one of No One Else Is Coming. Now, before we do, let's go over the mission of Forest Park Church. Why do we do what we do here at Forest Park? Our mission is quite simple. It says, help people follow Jesus one step at a time. That's why we exist, to help people follow Jesus one step at a time. Let's get into part one of our new series, No One Else Is Coming. How do we save the world? Will politicians do it? If we find a vaccine for COVID-19, will that save the world? Well, those things may change the world. They may make the world a little bit better. But the older I get, the more I travel and the more I read, the more convinced I am that thriving, healthy, growing local churches filled with people who follow Jesus will ultimately save the world. Our world is a mess and there's no one else coming to rescue us. It's up to us. What comes to mind when you hear the word church? A building, a choir, a weekend event, dresses and suits, fried chicken at grandma's house afterward, fighting with mom and dad about leaving on time. We probably have as many words coming to mind as we do people watching. For those of you who didn't grow up in church, church is defined as an institution for people who at worst need a reason to be kind or nice, or those who can't deal with life as it comes. So they bought into a fantasy of helping them through the tough parts. Not a whole lot different than Santa Claus. Or at best, it is a large social club where people who look alike and think alike and dress alike and vote alike gather together to laugh and sing and sell barbecue plates for the needy. And I don't blame them. That is exactly how many churches appear today. Overall, they are good for the community. They provide basic moral teachings, help take care of poor people, provide a place for lonely people to connect. You know, they're good people. But all of this is a long way from how the church was seen when it was birthed. In other words, in the first century, when the church exploded onto the scene, it looked radically different from selling barbecue plates and wearing fancy hats on Sunday mornings. When the church launched, it was laser focused. It was a movement of radically transformed people, not transformed by moral teachings like setting up classes to encourage girls not to have sex before marriage. It was a group of men and women from different places speaking different languages, made up of different cultures with different skin tones and dietary practices and sexual preferences and political ideas, all bound together, not because of what they believed, but because of what they had seen. The teachings of Jesus did not bind them together, at least not yet. What held them together 
was the resurrection of Jesus. They had seen something phenomenal, something that could not be explained by natural reasoning, something unnatural, maybe we should say something supernatural. A man who was beaten, tortured, and killed was laid to rest in a tomb, but three days later, he got up. Three days later, he walked out of the tomb alive. The only reasonable explanation for the survival of the church in the first century, the only way a small band of poor Jewish men and women from a tiny and insignificant part of the world could transform everything we know about history, reform the calendar, reset the clock, overcome the powers of Rome, and change the lives of countless millions of people was something undeniable. Something supernatural happened around 33 AD in Jerusalem, and that something was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that event so transformed the people who witnessed it, who saw with their own eyes Jesus Christ alive, so much so they had to tell the world the good news, that God and humanity are reconciled, that people are forgiven, that the way to salvation has been found, that love is who God is and mercy is his disposition, that creed and color make no difference, that the wealthy and poor, the educated and ignorant are welcome alike, that no one doesn't have to earn his or her way to God, that God has made the way easy and accessible for all people, Jew and Gentile alike. They had to tell the world. They had to announce what happened and what was happening. And they knew that a new day was here. A world was dawning. A new way of relating to God and one another was unfolding. So they taught people to align their lives to the new world, to the new way, to the new pattern, to follow Jesus, to learn from Jesus, to arrange their lives after Jesus. And they did. And soon, 12 turned into 120, and the 120 into 3,000, and the 3,000 into multitudes of thousands. And over time, slowly, the entire known world was radically changed. The early church, this, this newly birthed movement, was exciting, organic, passionate, innovative, and filled with fervent and dedicated people who loved one another and loved the strangers. There was no us versus them. There was only us the entire world was us. They met together day after day. They ate together, laughed together, cried together, celebrated together, prayed together, pooled their resources and met the needs of all the people together. And the church grew and grew and grew. It was a sight to behold. What began in a few houses and a handful of people spread to hundreds of homes. What started out in Jerusalem soon covered the earth. The Roman Empire, gone. Judaism in Jerusalem destroyed in 70 AD. Nero, gone. Caesar, gone. But today, one-third of the entire population of the world claims to be Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. The history of the church is rich and exciting. But after a while, what began as an organic, uncontrolled, underground movement became legalized, and then organized, and then institutionalized. What launched as a movement filled with eyewitnesses to the miraculous soon became stagnant impasse filled with protectors of the status quo. What began as a movement overflowing with people committed to following Jesus soon digressed to a sluggish establishment packed tight with people committed to sitting still. If I could travel through time and ask the people of the first century the question, when you hear the word church, what comes to mind? 
If I had asked them that question, we would hear descriptions such as compassionate, loving, generous, hope-filled, faithful, honest, hardworking, serving, family, committed, mission, growth, apostles, and disciples. What we wouldn't hear is conformity, bureaucracy, hypocrisy, services, best clothes and shoes, voting, majority rule, abuse of power, division, my way, red tape, and status quo. Yet, if you stopped and asked the average person on the street what they think of when they hear the word church today, we would hear more of the latter than the former. And part of our responsibilities as followers of Jesus is course correction of this. We are commissioned to move out of the second group as quickly as possible and get into the first group. And the only way that will happen is when we have crystal clear clarity and competent leaders, when we know where the church should be and we have women and men leading us there, when we know for certain what the church ought to look like, feel like, sound like, and we have strong, passionate, capable leaders who are taking us there as quickly as possible. So the two questions we must answer, which will be the focus of the balance of this message, are one, what is the church? And two, who is the church for? And how we answer these two questions affects how we do everything. First question, what is the church? The best way to answer this question is to go to the one who started the church and hear what he has to say about it. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. I want to tell you this story and explain a little of the details with you. Verse 13 says, Now when Jesus came to the area of Caesarea Philippi, some context to this passage. Augustus Caesar had given the city, Caesarea Philippi, to Herod the Great as a reward for loyalty. Herod built a temple of white stone where citizens could worship their emperor god, Augustus. Then, after the death of Herod the Great, his son Philip made it his capital. Caesarea Philippi was 1,100 feet up the slope of Mount Hermon. No doubt it was a stunning sight to behold. A white stone temple, 1,100 feet up the side of a mountain, glistening in the sun. The power and might of Rome, the opulence of the Caesars, the glory of the temple and the worship of pagan gods, all tucked away inside this mountainside. It was there, with Caesarea Philippi in the background. Jesus asked his famous question of his disciples. Who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, other Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said, and what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, the famous answer, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Then Jesus answered, happy are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because no human has shown this to you. Rather, my father who is in heaven has shown you. I tell you that you are Peter. And I'll build my church on this rock. The gates of the underworld, or hell, won't be able to stand against it. Interestingly, this is the first time church shows up in the New Testament. And the first time it appears, it is connected to a prediction, a prophecy of what would happen. Jesus says, I will build my church on this rock. Now, there are several things going on here with this statement, meaning several reasons why Jesus says, on this rock. The one that I want to focus on for just a moment is the statement Peter makes is actually a rock on which the entire church will be built. 
For thousands of years, builders would chisel and form marble, stone, and granite into blocks to be used for buildings. This was before they had concrete. And one particular block was most important in a building, the cornerstone. There was a, it was a specially shaped block used as a reference for the rest of the building. The cornerstone would be laid and all the other blocks would fall in line with it. The cornerstone would set the alignment, the direction, the stability of the entire building. The statement Peter makes, Jesus said, was the cornerstone on which the entire church would be built. Jesus was predicting he would use this special cornerstone to build a church so strong, so secure, so massive, not even hell itself could stop it. Now, what is the statement Peter makes that Jesus says he will use as the rock, the cornerstone of his church? It's found right here. When Peter answered Jesus and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's it. The cornerstone of the entire church rests on Jesus being the Christ, the son of the living God. Everything rests on that knowledge. The knowledge that Jesus is not merely a good teacher, a moral guide, a peacemaker, a revolutionary. No, the cornerstone is Jesus is the one and only son of God. And the other interesting piece of this exchange between Jesus and his disciples is his use of the word translated church. It's why I ask you at the beginning, what comes to mind when you hear the word church? Particular thoughts come into our mind that never entered the mind of the disciples when Jesus used the term church. In our world, church is a religious term. You say church and people immediately think of buildings, crosses, choirs, hymnals, priests, pastors, Bibles, you name it. But when Jesus used the word translated as church, nothing remotely religious came to mind. In fact, the word translated as church is the word ekklesia. Jesus never used the word church. That's our English word for the Greek word ekklesia. So when Jesus used ekklesia, it was not a religious term. It was a secular term. When Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my ekklesia, no one had any religious thoughts coursing through his or her brain. Offering plates didn't come to mind. They didn't hear choirs. They didn't think of golden crosses nor eating chicken at grandma's house after services. The word ecclesia was a secular word. It meant a gathering of people for a specific purpose. For instance, one could gather a group of people together for civic purposes, gather a group of people together for military purposes, gather a group of people for any reason whatsoever. It had nothing to do with a place. It had to do with a purpose. So Jesus says, on this confession of your faith, Peter, this belief that I am the Christ, the Son of God, I will gather together a group so strong, so powerful, resilient, and hell itself won't be able to stop this group of people. A gathering of people united by a common identity and purpose. That's the church. And each time we gather together for the sole purpose of accomplishing our calling, our purpose, you know what we're doing? We're fulfilling the prophecy, the prediction of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Now the second question, who is the church for? This gathering together of people united by a common identity and purpose, who gets to participate in that? Who gets to be a part? What, what standards must one meet? What disqualifies a person? Can a person who is not baptized get to be a part? What about someone who's unrepentant? What about someone who isn't sure all the things contained in Scripture is true? What if they've been married a few times? What if 
and you can fill in the blank any way you want. Look, after 25 years of preaching, studying, learning, leading, I don't have all the answers. I don't know exactly what to do in certain situations and with certain people. I don't know what's best when presented with a couple of options. The reality is I do the best I can. But here's what I do know. As far as this specific gathering, Forest Park Church, we will never allow a lack of certainty to stop us from reaching people. The more we reach out to people, real people, here's what I've learned, the messier everything becomes. And although it is difficult and challenging and sometimes frustrating, it's okay. Because churches are not designed for church people acting like church people. Churches, ecclesias, are designed for people. And people are messy. And you cannot have a church filled with people without becoming a messy church. Oh, I wish some people could see this. You cannot build clean churches filled with messy people. You can only build clean churches with clean people. The problem is, there are no clean people. Only churches filled with messy people acting like clean people. And churches designed to attract and keep good people will eventually be filled with hypocrites. Each person must put on a mask to be accepted and keep wearing one so as not to be kicked out. So here's the bottom line. What is the church? It is a gathering of people united by a common identity and purpose. What is the identity and purpose? We believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was born, lived, died, and resurrected that we might have life. And our purpose is to help people, real people, messy people, follow Him. And why is this important? Because healthy, vibrant, local churches filled with people following this Jesus are the hope of the world. A local gathering of different people with different ideas and different ways of looking at the world, coming together for the sole purpose of loving one another, serving one another, caring for one another, all under the canopy of Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. And listen carefully. No one else is coming. The government will not rescue us. The president won't rescue us. Congress won't, nor the Supreme Court. A vaccine for COVID-19 will not rescue us. More viruses will emerge. Amazon can't. Google can't. Apple can't. The hope of the world is not in Washington, D.C., or in Hollywood, or in 1,000 places or people. The hope of the world is found within healthy, thriving, strong, local churches filled with people following Jesus. So if not us, then who? Because no one else is coming. For the hurting and hopeless, for the down and discouraged, for the lonely and the forgotten, for the orphaned and abandoned, for the abused and discarded, for the broken and battered, for the sinner and hypocrite, for the burned out and bruised, for the tired and trodden, for the famous and empty, for the wealthy and wasted, for the prosperous and pitiful. For them, no one else is coming. If not us, who? That's why we want you to pray and give and serve and show up and invite and go above and beyond because no one else is coming. He's given us a commission. Let's unite 
under the identity of Jesus and the purpose of the Great Commission, and let's fulfill it. We are the hope of the world. It's up to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message today that has grabbed a hold of our hearts and our minds and turned our attention to the value and the power of the local church. And I pray that you will cause us to see the beauty and the majesty of your bride, the church. And Father, that we will realize that we need strong, vibrant, growing, thriving local churches. Because God, no one else is coming to rescue us. You've given us the commission to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. That is the commission you've given us. That is the hope of the world, building those strong, vibrant churches. May we give to that, serve to that end, give our heart, our time, our passion, our talent, our skills, and watch you do incredible things in us and through us as we unite together to accomplish the task in front of us. Thank you for allowing us to be a part. And we ask these things and believe these things in the name of the one who has made the cornerstone possible, Jesus Christ. Amen.